Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, I hope you are doing well. Uh, this is our last stab at the book of Hosea. Uh, it's been short, but uh, for me, it has been very challenging so far and very life-giving. So uh, I hope that uh, you will benefit from this last chapter as we take a look at it together. Uh, I want to start off by saying I don't know uh, where all of you are exactly at right now uh, with your walk with the Lord. I know many of you because I get to commune with you regularly, and I get to know your victories and your failures and your successes and how the Lord is working to break bondage to sin. Um, and, but for some of you, I don't. And that's okay because this word that Hosea has to the people uh, is true regardless of where you're at with your walk with the Lord. He's going to talk specifically about people who have faith, who have been called by God for a specific purpose, and who have since started walking away from their initial calling, who've started walking away from the promises that God has for them. And so, uh, for us today as Christians, this has a specific implication about what we call backsliding. This is the idea that a Christian can once walk in faith, walk in joy, walk in abundance with the Lord, and then for seasons of time, or perhaps for a long period of time, uh, backslide and fall away and fall back into sin and back into bondage and back into that slavery. And so Hosea is going to specifically address this topic today. Uh, but wherever you are with the Lord, whatever your story is, whatever brought you in this evening, um, this is a word that all of us need to hear, and it's going to benefit all of us tremendously. So, so far uh, in the book of Hosea, we've seen Israel, the rebellious people, the rebellious nation, right? We've spent a lot of time unpacking, first by analogy in the first three chapters, Hosea and Gomer, his adulterous wife, uh, and then by extension of that analogy in chapters 4 all the way through chapter 13 so far, we've been looking at Israel and their specific sins and how Hosea and Gomer and their relationship is really a narrative picture of what's actually going on with the nation of Israel and their faithlessness to the Lord and the fact that they leave him and they cheat on him with other idols and with false gods. And so far we've seen them, the rebellious people, and we've seen that they at one time in their relationship communed with God. These are the people who walked with God when he was a pillar of fire and a cloud. And they walked with him when he was the tabernacle. And they walked with him when he led them through the Red Sea and fed them manna by hand. And many of us have never seen things like that before. But Israel did, and they got to see that. And these people who communed so closely with God as a nation, eventually their desires shifted, and their hearts were turned from the Lord, and they faded, and they pursued other things. And although this describes Israel... I think this also describes us. This describes us when we at one time know the joy of salvation, the joy of communing with the Lord. We walk in this amazing season where we get to commune with him closely, pray, we get to worship fully without actually caring what anyone hears what we say and how we actually sound when we sing. And then we, we slide and we walk away from that. And not all of a sudden, not at one moment, but over time, things become less joyful to us. And we don't see them quite as precious as we did before. This is the story of Israel as well. Their unfaithfulness, their idolatry, their infidelity towards God. But God has, by contrast, been faithful the whole time, despite the fact that his people are not. The people find their desires fully satisfied by all kinds of things who are not God. There's not Yahweh. And we took a look at that last week when we looked at chapter 12 and chapter 13, about the people's desires in all these other things. And they seek their satisfaction and their security and their fulfillment 
and all these things that God promised them would not satisfy them, would not fulfill them. But as soon as he feeds them by hand, their hearts are lifted up and they turn away once again from the Lord. They're described several times in the book of Hosea as people who pursue the wind. They chase emptiness. But this doesn't stop them. And this doesn't stop God from one more time in chapter 14 speaking to his people and calling them back to repentance. God is going to have Hosea one more time deliver one final oracle in this book. And the final message, the concluding chapter, as the credits are rolling, this is the message that God has for his people that's going to now echo throughout all time. The last take-home message, the last thing that people ought to take away from this is that they can still return to the Lord. And so we're going to see that throughout this chapter. So look with me at verse 1. It says, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. You see the desperation that we were left with at the end of chapter 13, that picture of destruction, utter ruin that Israel was going to come under because of Assyria. That picture left us with a bit of angst, and we talked about that last week, right? As Westerners, we really don't like the cliffhanger that ends in a bad way, right? Movies typically don't do this anymore. Movies typically have to have happy endings to sell well. And all the stories we tell, typically, we want them to end well. But in chapter 13, that story ends with a real big cliffhanger of destruction. And this is the final note, it seems like, for Israel. And we come out of that desperation, and we get into chapter 14. And he comes off of that, and he says, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. And he's going to say that they have to return because we've known that they've been stumbling in iniquity. They've been stumbling in their sin. Return. This word is the word throughout the book of Hosea that can be used also to repent. Right? We use that term very commonly in Christian circles to talk about repentance. And we ought to be careful about what that word means. Andrew talked uh, a few weeks ago about what repentance really means, what it's all about. And what repentance is all about is turning away from sin and turning back to God. And how often we need to be reminded of these things. How often we need to return back to the Lord. And I want to ask us this question. How often have we at once walked with God and eventually stumbled back into our old ways, into our old sins? We hit the spiritual high that we hit at one moment, at one time. We promise ourselves we're never going to do that sin again. Maybe it's quickly after we sin. Maybe it's a long, a long time after, after we're brought under conviction. But we say we're never going to do that thing again, and then enough time passes, and we become comfortable with sin, and then we, we do, and we stumble again. And how many times do we stumble over and over before we begin to feel helpless? And we stop praying that much because we don't know if God's really listening anymore. And we stop seeking God's face because we think, surely at this moment I've disqualified myself from him really listening. You know, I know what his word says, but I also know what I've done. And that weighs heavily on us. And we start to believe the lie that we've done things that God's no longer listening. He doesn't really care. And how long before we begin to believe that lie and it sets into our heart and it takes away and robs us of the joy of communion with God. Here, God calls Israel to return back to him. This is a message that is pretty unprecedented given the state of Israel, right? Their sin has been going on for 200 years, king after king after king, nation after nation, false god after false god, churning out idol after idol. 
And yet God, through his prophet, decides to deliver one more message, and that message is once again to return. He says they need to return because of their iniquity. He says they stumbled because of their sin. This is Israel needing to confess the reason why they're away from God. The reason they're going to fall as a nation is not because Egypt isn't that strong of an army or they made a bad bet with Assyria. It's not Adam in the Garden of Eden when he said, it is the woman that you have given me, and then the woman says it was the serpent who tempted me. When you confess sin, you have to recognize that you stumbled because of your own sin. It was your fault. We put ourselves in bad environments, yes, but the environment is not responsible for the sin. You are responsible, ultimately, for that sin. And returning to the Lord begins first and foremost with confessing sin. This is the number one thing that separates us from that communion with God, that causes us to walk away with him, to stop really enjoying him, to stop praying, to stop seeking the Lord, seeking his joy, because eventually we begin to believe the lie that we no longer can. So we have to start with a confession of sin, and that's where God, when he calls Israel to return back into relationship with him, that's what he calls them to do, is to confess their sin. In verse 2, he starts to tell them how to confess. It's very interesting that he doesn't leave them up to their own devices when he gives them those prayers. He gives them the words that they ought to say. He says, take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, except what is good. And we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses and we will say no more our God to the, hand, to the work of our hands. And you, the orphan, finds mercy. That's a prayer of repentance, a confession of sin, a turning away from the old life, and a turning back to the Lord. We repent, first and foremost, with a means of grace. There's two primary ways in which God is going to give us the grace of forgiveness, the actual strength to turn back to him and commune once again with him. You can see it in the text here in verse 2. He says, take with you words. What are those words that we take with us to the Lord? Well, us today, those words are the ones that he's given us in his word. He gave us a whole book that tells us all about his faithfulness, that cites to us story after story after story of people who fall into sin and who God is faithful to forgive them of their sin, make them new, wash them clean, and make them mighty for his name's sake. And he forgives all kinds of things. And so we first and foremost take with him words. And if we don't know what words to say when we commune again with the Lord, he's given us 150 chapters in the Psalms that we can pray back to him if we don't have the words to say. If our heart has a certain uh, pain to it and we know that we ought to confess, but we don't know exactly what to say or how to say it, or we don't know how to pray because we haven't done it in a while, he gives us everything we need to say. He says, take with you words and return to the Lord and say to him, and that us saying to him is prayer. So not only we take the words of scripture with us to the Lord, but we also have to engage with him in prayer. That's the second means of grace that we can receive forgiveness. You see, the, the dangerous thing about not communing with the Lord is prayer is usually the first thing to go. That's a good litmus test for how your walk with God is doing right now. How often do you pray? How frequently do you pray? What do you pray about? Prayer is the first thing to go. You see, the, the problem with most of us is we know enough Christian lingo and we've been in church long enough to mask and put on a front to everybody else around us about how our life is going. 
we can say things the right way and we can do all the right actions and we can say all the right words to the worship song. And at the, the reality of it, at the end of the day, when we're on our knees before the Lord, there's nothing that comes out because our heart feels dead to him. There's something about us that begins to believe the lie that he's really not listening anymore and these words are just kind of echoing into my room and not doing anything. Prayer is the first thing to go. And so the Lord says, when you return to me, pray, talk to me. He describes himself in Hosea as a father and through analogy of Hosea as a husband. And those are pictures of intimacy that the Lord has with his people. And so he wants us to commune with him. He wants us to talk to him. And he gives us the words to say, the first thing that they ask for is for him to take away all iniquity. And that's a high order. You don't ask those kinds of things of people who can't deliver it. But we know that God can and will and does take away their sin. And they say that we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. They're saying that they're once again going to become faithful to the sacrifices. They're not going to do it in false religious worship. They're going to pray first for the forgiveness of their sins from their heart. And then they're going to respond rightly in worship to the Lord. You see, prayer is the first thing to go. Religious action can begin to mask that. But we should never throw religion out completely because religion, remember, first and foremost, was instituted by God as a means by which we can enjoy him. Praying and confessing sin out loud is important. But you can, and we all know this, you can confess things and say words with your mouth that you don't really mean with your heart. But that doesn't mean when you actually mean it with your heart, you shouldn't say it out loud. You shouldn't seek reconciliation with people. You shouldn't say those sin confessions. All he's saying is you've got to mean it too. You can do the things that God has put before you to do. You can read your Bible and pray and do it in an empty way, in a religious way, in a way that doesn't honor the Lord. But you can also do those things in a way that completely honors God because those are the way in which he has given us the opportunity to commune with him. We have to approach God in prayer. That's what we know from this sin confession. And in verse 3, they go specifically naming sins that they've been struggling with the whole book. It says, Assyria shall not save us. You remember that Israel has been indicted several times now by Hosea for their trust in their foreign alliances, Egypt and Assyria, but really Assyria was the main one they were trying to lean on. And here they have to come to the end of themselves and say that Assyria cannot, does not, and will not save us. That is a confession of the sin that they have specifically committed against God. When they return to the Lord, they have to confess sin, and not sin in general, specific sin, the ones they know they are guilty of. Many of us are very good at saying we are sinners and we do sin, and we can speak about sin in broad terms. But when it comes to naming specific things, to calling it out specifically, we get very uncomfortable, and it's hard for us to be honest with ourselves because we're being very dishonest with everyone else around us too. And you can lie to everyone else, but you can't lie to God. And when you think he's not listening to your prayers, he's listening, for sure, to everything, more than you want him to hear. And he sees things more than you want him to see, and he knows things more than you want him to know. And so you can't lie to him, you can't fool him, you can't deceive him. So Israel confesses their specific sin of trusting in 
political powers, but they go on because they know that's not the only sin. They're cleaning house, right? When they return to the Lord, they're not leaving anything on the table. They're not leaving anything in reserve. They're just going to throw it all out there. And they want to be open before the Lord because they know that's the only way to commune rightly with him. So the other thing that they say is, we will not ride on horses. Now that's metaphorical language for the army, the cavalry that Israel would have had. And remember, the other thing that they did, not only did they trust in their political alliances with these other military powers, but they also trusted in their own army. If you remember, Israel was a kingdom. It was a nation. And you can read about David and their conquest that they have. The Israelite army was powerful. And they began to take these victories and consider their army to be the source of their strength. And they have to confess that sin because they sought their power and their security, not in God who promised it to them, but in their own ability to earn those things, in their own ability to accumulate wealth, in their own strength, they sought their security. And lastly, they confess the sin of their idol worship. They say, we will say no more our God to the work of our hands. These idols that they falsely crafted with their gold and their silver, with their skilled craftsmen, they have to confess that these things are not our God. We can't say that anymore. We have to put them in the right place. We can't worship things that we make with our own hands. These are the specific sins that Israel struggles with. They're the specific sins they have to confess in order to get back in right relationship with God. What is the specific sin for you that you need to confess in order to get back in right relationship with the Lord? The Israelites know that this is the thing keeping them from communing with God. And so when God tells them to return, he gives them a way to do so. And it's uncomfortable. Imagine you went to a doctor's office and you sought treatment for something you knew was wrong. And the doctor said, you're sick. You said, I know. He says, all right, you're sick. We'll fix you. And he's just speaking generally about illness in broad terms, but he's not going to nail the specific thing that he knows is wrong. And you would say he's very bad at treating that illness. Because in order to treat a disease, you need to know specifically what it is, to target that intervention, and to follow through in all the ways that you know how. And so when we're dealing with sin, we ought to be exact and precise. And with a surgical precision, we need to cut out that sin from our lives. Like when you're removing cancer, you take not only the cancer cells out, but you take also a little margin to make sure, just in case there's a little bit there, we're going to check to make sure there's nothing. And if we find something, we're going to go wider and we're going to take more until we know that it doesn't exist anymore. And with our sin, I think too often, we're comfortable when we squish it away as long as it's no longer visible. As long as it's not erupting in our face, we become very complacent with the sin in our lives. Can we be honest with ourselves about what that sin is? About where it exists? About how complacent we might have come with it? On close inspection, we're able to purify our soul. We don't want to, with broad brushstrokes and generalizations, handle our sin. We ought to be specific. We ought to be targeted. The reality is that uh, darkness can only exist where the light doesn't shine. And so if you're willing to cover it up, it can stay there and grow and multiply. But if you're willing to shine light on it, that's the first step to getting rid of it. And they, they couch all of this repentance, all of this upon the one who is merciful. Notice the very end of that prayer. It says, in you 
the orphan finds mercy. You see, they're not going to a God that they're afraid is going to crush them. He opens up the repentance and the return to a God who is merciful, who is just to both punish and forgive. A God of mercy. This is the God who they go with, who they bring their sin before. They say, in you, the orphan finds mercy. And if you remember, Israel is the orphan that they're talking about. They are the very children of God who have wandered. And God says, you are not my people. So now they have no father. Now they have no ruler. So they are an orphan nation. But in him, the orphan nation will find mercy. And you and I are sons of Adam by nature. We live and we follow our father. But in God, the orphan finds mercy. And he adopts us as sons and daughters into his kingdom. And that picture of adoption is a picture of a transference from one family and an adoption into another with all the full legal protections of a full-fledged child. In him is where the orphan goes to find mercy and comfort and security. That's where they go. And they don't do so because they're concerned about whether this is or is not going to work. This is not Israel being concerned about a coin flip opportunity. They know the promise that God has stated to them, that if they return, he is faithful. Because remember, as we talked about a few weeks ago, he made this promise on the basis of himself. This is an immutable promise. He promised to Abraham an offspring and a nation. And so Israel gets to step into that promise because God will be faithful to honor the words that he has spoken. And I want us to take a second to think about this. None of the sins that Israel is currently struggling with and having to confess at this moment at the end of Hosea, none of those sins happened overnight. Those sins at this point in time are fully blown, rearing their head in their whole humility and their whole horror and all of their terror. But these sins didn't happen all of a sudden. You see, if you read uh, the book of Exodus, you find Israel walking in the wilderness and they bump into people who are worshiping Baal. And yeah, they fall really quick and they get back up on their feet again and God restores them and a few people die, but overall the nation survives. But this plants a seed of sin. And then they come to the promised land and they start off really well with Joshua and they're killing back all the people who God tells them to remove and they're holding purity and they're walking in holiness and they're set apart. And then they get to some nations that they become complacent with. Nations who worship the Baals. And they become complacent with them. And they allow them to live. They're not going to mix with these nations, of course not. But they'll let them live there. And then a few generations pass and Israel begins to take wives from their daughters and give their daughters to those nations as well. Now they start intermixing, and these wives lead the Israelites astray. And so the sin that began by a brief interaction in the desert begins to grow and to mature and to develop and to evolve and to eventually, hundreds of years later, we get to this point where it is now the sin of full-on idolatry where they're actually crafting false images. They've forgotten the Ten Commandments. But you've got to understand, this doesn't happen overnight. This sin was planted a long time ago with this nation. These sins are now full grown, but they didn't start that way. And this is true of all sin. It doesn't start 
full grown. It starts as a seed. Whether that be a, a thought, a desire, a leaning that you might have, an idea, a conversation. Innocent enough, it starts. But that's where it starts. And it will grow if you become complacent. And it will mature and evolve and progress until eventually you wake up one night and you're like, I don't know how I got here. But if you think you do know how you got there, you can trace back the signs. You can follow the trail. You know. It seems we can't make it more than a month or so before we find another Christian leader who's decided to disqualify themselves from ministry. And every time it comes out as a huge shock to the world. It comes out as a shock to us because we have no idea. Someone who looks great doing ministry, doing God's work, comes out as completely fallen. And the reality is that we might be surprised by those things, but we have to realize that that wasn't an isolated incident one time fully rearing its head. That was a pattern that began long ago in that person's life. And it didn't start full-blown, but it began. And it progressed unchecked. And they didn't have accountability, so it goes even further, and it begins to pop out here and there. And they push it under, saying it's not real, it's not, it's not there, I don't have to address it, right? It hasn't fully compromised anyone. And eventually it just fully rears its head. And it will, and it always does, find itself out. You get the same story about marriages that end in divorce. And you say, you don't know how that happened. It seems overnight. It just all of a sudden happened. But the reality is that there was a trajectory for a period of time before that where a seed was planted, someone stopped pursuing someone else. There was unfaithfulness. Those things don't happen overnight. Those things begin and they progress. And they get progressively worse until finally you can't push it down anymore. Sin does not happen suddenly. And the worst sins, the ones we struggle with the longest, the ones we fight the hardest, those are the ones that are the best at staying in dormant states for extended periods of time before they rear their head again. Those are the ones that we need to be most vigilant in getting rid of. Israel struggles with idolatry. And with their religious worship, they can cover up their idol practice because they're still worshiping God and they're still sacrificing to Yahweh. So they don't really recognize at first glance that they've actually started to drift away from him because they can cover it up and they can mask it with their religion. And you and I are the same way because we grew up in an American Christian world where we can say the right things and do the right things and we never actually have to address our heart situation, not regularly, not as long as we can keep it suppressed. And in doing so, we can mask and deal with the symptoms but never deal with the disease and let it become progressively worse and worse and worse until one day the symptoms are not the problem anymore. It's fully rearing its head. Israel's sin began as a seed, but eventually that seed grew and led to death. Sin, when it's fully conceived, breeds death. Maybe at this moment you haven't been caught or exposed, or found out. But your sin will grow if you keep it.
it will grow and it will progress. And maybe not this year, maybe not next, maybe not in the next decade, but eventually it will come in full depravity. The reality is Israel never turns. That's why we got to chapter 13 and the punishment that they faced. Israel never turns from their sin. In their 200-year history, they, for brief moments, come out of sin, depending on what king is in the throne. But they always backslide really hard and for long periods of time into state-sanctioned idol worship. And then it becomes more official and more okay. But they never turn. The sins that blow up on people always are there before they blow up. They're not things that happen overnight. And I have to confess that of all the people who I see disqualify themselves from ministry and all the people who I see, sin blows up in their face. If I take a step back and look at my own heart, I can recognize a lot of those seeds. Not fully grown, not matured and suppressed for 30 years, but I can see those seeds. And I think if you and I take an examination of our heart, we can see those seeds as well. Things that we aren't dealing with right now because they don't demand our attention with urgency, But if we really reflect on what is separating us from a good communion with God, we can reflect on the fact that these things right now, even in their dormant state, are delivering us some level of separation. And when they begin to grow, it'll become increasingly more obvious. So why not deal with it now? When it's in seed form, when you can eradicate it easily, when it's not going to rear its head fully, why not deal with it now? We cannot be comfortable with sin at any level at all. Complacency will ruin your communion with God. Being complacent with your sin and tolerant of your sin and neutral will ruin your ability to run after the Lord. Take two biblical heroes in this case, two people who walk in favor with God, Joseph and David, and how they deal with sin. They both deal with the same sin, sexual sin. Both Joseph and David are presented similar opportunities to engage in sin. And if you read the story of Joseph, the victory over that sin doesn't happen at some climactical moment in the story. He never even gives it an opportunity to develop a plot. That doesn't make for a good story. Joseph doesn't even let it have any root at all. He flees immediately because he knows what that is and he recognizes it for what it is and he refuses to tolerate it, but David is different. David, when he's given the same opportunity, he allows for his gaze to go. And he allows himself to look. And he allows himself to invite. And eventually, that sin fully rears its head on David. And that makes for a very dramatic story, one that ends in tragedy for David and for his household. But you have to understand that that sin was the same sin for both of them. It's not as though Joseph encountered a less powerful version of the same temptation. Joseph dealt with it when it was at its least powerful moment. And he dealt with it in the most appropriate way possible, when it was in its seed form. Way before it ever had an opportunity to fully ruin his life. And he does so unapologetically. And they both confess that that sin would be a sin against God himself. David In his confession afterwards, Joseph says, how can I sin against my God? 
beforehand. But they both know what that sin is. They both recognize it. David, unfortunately, needs to go through the hard lesson of its sin, fully rearing its head before he can confess it, though. So Israel here is given an opportunity to confess their sin for all that it is in its full form and to walk back then and commune with God. Clean slate. That's the opportunity that he's giving them. So how can we be content with our sin in our own lives? Think about God as a husband, right? This is the picture we are given in Scripture of God. We are told that he is our husband and that we are to commune closely with him as his bride. And imagine if you had a spouse or a fiancé or someone you're dating, and they get 23 hours a day, they're yours. They have intimacy with you. You get to know their hearts, their thoughts, what they love, what they don't love. All those things for 23 hours a day. And for one hour a day, though, they can share that with whomever they want and do whatever they want. Is that an intimacy that we would be content with? And yet we do the same thing to God and we expect him to be okay that we've given him a simple majority of our time, of our affections, of our attention, of our lives. But we don't surrender at all. And we need to stop being okay with that. That kind of violation to wander away even for a moment is so sharp that we need to deal with it at that level. Treat it as it is. And stop excusing it away and pretending like it's not there. This is the reality for us. The tolerance of sin begins to lead Israel first to idolatry and then to covering up that idolatry with uh, religious worship of God. False worship of God, but they still do all the right actions and say all the right things and remember all the correct sacrifices and still have a priesthood and they still do all the festival days. But they've really lost a long time ago the communion with God. But how many of us have done the same thing? Maybe for a brief season, maybe you're walking in that now, maybe you know what I'm talking about because you can reflect in your own life on that. Maybe you can recognize the seeds of something that is going to rear its head soon or has begun, begun to plant itself into your life. You need to deal with it with whatever stage it's at fully. But dealing with it is always the same. Confess, go back to the Lord, commune with him fully. Allow him to give you the strength to get out of that. But I want you to know that the reason Israel is able to do all these things is because God is faithful to deliver on this promise. Look with me at verse 4. God says, I will heal their apostasy. Apostasy is another way to say backsliding. People who once walked in faith and now walk away from God, he's going to heal their apostasy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely for my anger has turned from them. God's anger completely turns away from Israel. And the reason, if you remember, that his anger is able to turn from Israel is because he's going to aim that anger at someone else. That anger's going somewhere. He's just turning it away from Israel. But he goes on. He says, I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive. His fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom 
like the vine, and their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. These words hardly need explanation. Those metaphors are rich, they're beautiful. In God is the abundance that you seek. In God is the joy of communion that you ultimately want. That sin that you think is going to satisfy you and give you that joy, that way that Israel was fully fed and then they turn and they love their sin and they think that it's their sin that is feeding this, it is God the whole time. And he is the one who's going to provide that joy for them and he's the one who's going to provide that joy for you as well. The abundance, the grace. And he paints this picture by using Lebanon. Now, I know most of us don't know the Middle East very well. It's a wilderness. It's a desert. And it's painted as this picture all the time. There's not really water anywhere. They have to kind of scavenge for food. But there are some places, Lebanon being one of them, that are lush. They're beautiful. They grow great fruit and an abundant harvest. And this is the picture God says that he is to Israel. And he will make them like the trees of Lebanon, the most lush of all the landscape. He's going to make them. And his fragrance will be like Lebanon. You know that fresh smell of plants? Fully healthy and a nice dew-saturated environment where there's just an abundance of life, an abundance of clean purity, an abundance of fruit, a large harvest. This is what God describes Israel when they're under his shadow. Verse 7, he says, they shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They're going to be under his protection. Jesus says in the New Testament to Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that stones the prophets, how long I would have gathered you like a chick gathers her chick, like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not repent. See, this is the heart of God to gather his people back under his wings, under his shadow, under his protection, where he can pour out his blessings upon them because he is great at his blessings. He gives them the promised land. He gives them Moses. He delivers them from slavery. He gives them food directly from heaven. He gives them all these things. And how many blessings has he given you and I and we quickly forget all of the things that he has given us in our lives. Family, job, security, health. To live in a place where we can freely practice religion. Where we can worship him without fear of imprisonment. All of these blessings, and we, we hardly remember them anymore because they're so common to us. He promises to heal them when they return to him. And he promises to love them freely. And he says in verse 5, I will be like the dew to Israel. The dew is a, is a picture of water. You see, plants to grow, they need water first and foremost. And the rest of that analogy is the abundance of fruit, the abundance of life, the abundance of growth. But first, it needs dew. It needs water. It needs moisture to grow. What's interesting about the dew is not only does it feed the life of the plant, it's also very intimate with the plant. It's right on it. It's there. And God describes himself in that way to us. He's like the dew. Not only does he provide abundantly, but he is intimately there with his people who are going to experience his growth. And in the New Testament, we know exactly what that is because Jesus says he's going to leave and he's going to bring the comforter afterwards and he gives us his Holy Spirit who is the dew that dwells closely with us, that allows us to experience the joy of the Lord and who 
bends our heart and works on us to convict us of sin and to also allow us to experience fully the joy of God, the dew of the Lord, that we can rejoice and laugh and be happy even in the most crazy times because we have our joy in the Lord. We have our abundance in Him. We have our comfort from Him. He is the life. He gives us His Spirit to be that life. They flourish with God, with no one else. They've tried it their way, didn't work. God says, if you return back to me, here is my whole promise list to you. And no matter how far you have stumbled, no matter how far you have fallen, no matter how many times you have stumbled, return once more to the Lord your God. He is faithful to forgive Israel, his apostate children. He will be faithful to forgive you of whatever sin you think disqualified you from communion with God, whatever that sin might be. God wants us exclusively to himself. It says in verse 8, O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? Answer, nothing. He has nothing to do with idols. And so you and I, his children, should also have nothing to do with idols. We are to be separated from those things, clearly distinct, set apart, like no one else. We have nothing to do with idols because God has nothing to do with idols. He says, it is I who answered and look after you. Then he goes on to describe himself as an evergreen cypress. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. What's interesting about an evergreen tree, it's, a very, it's, one, of the, it's one of the peculiar analogies God uses about himself because he only at this one moment in the book of Hosea describes himself as the tree. Typically, Israel is the one who's the the fruit, the plant that needs to grow. But here God describes himself as the tree. And when he describes himself as a tree, he picks the tree that doesn't have an off season. It's always green. It's always abundant. It's always bountiful. He is that tree. If you're going to liken God to a tree, better pick the right one. God says the one that's always in bloom. That's the tree. And from me comes your fruit. Jesus goes in the New Testament, he says, I am the vine. He's the one who produces that fruit. Then we get a picture of wisdom literature. In this closing verse 9, we get this picture of sharp contrast, two different paths, two different ways. If you're familiar with Psalm 1 or any of the Proverbs, you'll get this picture of the wise and the foolish. And he says in verse 9, whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them, for the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. There's two clearly different paths in this book. There's two clearly different ways to walk. You could walk as Israel does, on the foolish path, the wicked path, the one that's clearly destined for destruction, by ample warning and ample patience and ample opportunity to repent, and you could still walk in that foolishly. That's what a fool would do. Or, he says, if you are wise, let understand this. If you are discerning, let him know them. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools are the ones who despise wisdom 
and instruction. God says that in him you will find wisdom, in him you will find life. And that psalm that I referenced earlier, Psalm 1, why don't you turn there with me? We can get this picture painted out in a little bit more detail than Hosea provides. In Psalm 1, we get the picture of the two paths. And I just want to read it through and let these words sink over us about wisdom and foolishness. It says in verse 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. But the wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. In full detail, that same wisdom here in Psalm 1, and in countless other places in Scripture in which time would fail me to help you turn with me to look at. But this is the the reality of Scripture. There are two paths. Jesus says it this way, that there is a narrow way and there is a broad way. One leads to life, the other does not. There is a narrow gate and there is a broad gate. There's a man who builds his house on the rock and there's one who builds his house on the sand. And these are two clearly wise and clearly foolish actions. And we, knowing all that Scripture has to say on this thing, would still be tempted by our modern world to make the foolish choice. But we need to recognize with godly eyes, with godly discernment. Let the one who is wise, let him understand these things. The one who has spiritual insight into these things should see them and know them for exactly what they are. To recognize wisdom as wise. To recognize foolishness for exactly what it is, not what the world elevates it to be. Because God gives us clear pictures of these things. There's two clearly different paths. There's only two. I've mentioned this before, so I won't belabor this for too long, but there's no neutral people on this earth towards God. There are foolish people and there are wise people. There are wicked people and there are righteous people. There are those who are of his sheepfold and there are those who are the goats. There are clear distinctions drawn. Two different options. If you have regressed in sin, if you have slid back for a time, if you recognize that in yourself, if you stopped praying a little while ago to the Lord, I want you to recognize that in your heart and be honest with yourself about what that is. Maybe tell people who you're accountable to about those things. If you're not, maybe find someone to be accountable to that can hold you and be honest with you. If you've never walked with God, he still calls you to return. These blessings are not exclusive to Christians, but we know exactly what they taste like in all their joy. And so he calls this same, he he holds the same option open to those who don't believe either. For them to commune for the first time with him, him, for them to experience this joy for the first time. 
for them to walk with him for the first time. And as Christians, we, we can't do anything that would call our salvation into question, but we can mar the Holy Spirit who's within us, and we can wound him. Because the Spirit of God dwells within us, so if we actively engage in sin, despite his conviction, despite his promptings, we can seriously damage that relationship with God. And we ought to be wary of that and not take his grace so lightly and not deal with it so cheaply. There's nothing magical about a sinner's prayer and a prayer of confession. The words themselves, repeated with no meaning, have no meaning. But if you reflect on those words in your heart, the reality of those words, the truth of those words, and you actually mean it when you say it, as God calls his people to hear, they are the words of life to enjoy presence with God. So if you would close with me, you can either pray in your own heart or follow with me with these words. I want to pray a prayer of confession that we could once again confess our sin to the Lord and believe on him. Lord, we thank you for who you are and all that you are. Oh Lord, we know upon reflection of our own hearts and what you've called us to be that we are falling miserably short of those things. And Lord, we confess the sin that is in our own hearts that is currently separating us from you, that has in the past separated us from you, that is right now being tolerated in our hearts, that will one day begin to separate us from you. At all levels, Lord, would you give us eyes to see and recognize those things for exactly what they are? Would you give us wisdom and discernment to see with spiritual eyes these things? Lord, would you forgive us of our wickedness? Of the things that we do that we know we should not do? Would you forgive us for our ability to so easily be pleased by the things of this world? And would you once again be faithful to us to turn our hearts back to you? Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to commune with you. I pray that we would not too quickly forget those things and that truth. Lord, I pray that you would not only forgive us in this moment, but forgive us for the sins we haven't even thought of committing yet. The ones you already know because you know all things. And that you would guard our hearts from those things. And keep us in community with people who will call out those things. And Lord, that when we are weak, you would be strong and you would bring around brothers and sisters in Christ who would be strong for us when we cannot be strong. And Lord, we pray ultimately just to commune with you in the full joy and splendor that it is to be in relationship with you. I pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.